Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy, the podcast that empowers you to transform life's challenges into opportunities for personal growth and healthier relationships. We're your hosts, Tim and Ruth Olson, licensed marriage and family therapists and trauma experts. As experienced therapists with backgrounds in addressing trauma and mental health disorders, we believe there is hope and there certainly is healing. We've spent our lives supporting people through the ups and downs, and we want to share these insights with you. Together, we'll unravel the layers of personal growth healing from trauma, and building healthy relationships. Each week, we'll bring you engaging conversations, expert insights, and practical strategies to help you heal from the past, foster healthy communication, and develop enduring love. This podcast is your guide to transforming adversity into triumph, healing wounds and past trauma, gaining wisdom and insight, and creating meaningful, fulfilling connections. So if you're here to heal, to better understand yourself or your relationships, you're in the right place. So sit back, get comfortable, bring your trauma and your drama, and let's start healing. Welcome Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We're so glad that you're here with us today. We're continuing our series on anxiety, and this will be the last episode in this series. And so we started the series off with explaining exactly what generalized anxiety disorder was and the criteria with it. Then we went into other diagnoses that also include anxiety or look similar to anxiety. And we continued with how anxiety affects our daily life. And then the last two episodes and this episode, we focused on how do we manage or overcome anxiety. And we've been using Margaret Werenberg's book, The 10 Best Ever Anxiety Management Techniques. And one of the things that I really like is that she breaks it up into three clusters of symptoms, and then she gives techniques based on those symptoms. So it's more specific to the symptoms that you're experiencing. So let me just review those really quickly. The cluster one symptoms are distressing physical arousal. And then we talked about three methods to overcome those symptoms. And then cluster two is tension, stress, and dread. And we went through methods four through six. And the final one that we're going to talk about today is cluster three, the mental anguish of rumination. But before we jump into today's episode, if you haven't already joined our Facebook group, we'd love for you to join us over there as we continue the conversation after the podcast. You can easily click the link in the show notes and we'll see you over there. So let's jump into today's episode. So cluster three is the mental anguish of rumination. And the thing with this idea of rumination, that people with anxiety often have this cloud of worry that's just constantly there. So what Margaret says is, what clients worry about, often ordinary day-to-day concerns, is less important than the omnipresence of the worry. And so it's this idea that their brain is just constantly worrying and kind of just humming along with that worry in the background which then begins to affect them physically and they can feel the tension and just that pit in the stomach. So this act of ruminating, when you look it up, is excessive, repetitive thinking focused on the same, usually negative idea or theme. And so it's not that the worry is getting them anywhere, right? They're not worrying and creating a plan. But like that definition, it's just this repetitive thought that is kind of mulled over again and again and again. And I want to jump in and go into a little bit of an explanation about rumination. And 
In particular, there's some animals that are called ruminants. An example of a ruminant would be a cow. Now, what a cow does is they eat some hay or eat some grass, they chew it, they swallow it. Cows have multiple sections of their stomach, and the first one is called the ruminant. And when it goes into that section, it kind of starts getting broken down a little bit, but it's not done with the process. So the contents in that part of the stomach actually come back up into the mouth to get re-chewed. And when you think about anxiety, it's very similar. You'll kind of chew on that anxiety, you'll think about it, you might even try to make plans for it or try to come to solutions about it, and then you'll kind of swallow it, you'll seemingly be done with it, and then that exact same thing will come right back up. And then you'll chew on it some more, you'll try to work through it some more. But a part of the difficulty with anxiety is we get stuck in this loop. We don't progress on further. We're not able to really fully digest it. And when you're stuck there, I think that's what goes along with this cluster three, the mental anguish of rumination, because it's very uncomfortable. It's not fun. You're not getting any benefit or progressing very far through this. So when you think about returning back to that same thing that's making you anxious, the more times you do that, the more disheartened and dissatisfied I think people become when they're stuck in that state and phase. And so being able to break that cycle and be able to process and move on from the anxiety is very important not to getting stuck into that mental anguish. So one of the things about this is that just trying to solve all of the problems that you're worrying about oftentimes isn't the actual solution because you're not necessarily worrying about something that's even worth worrying about. So what's going to happen is if you solve a problem, a lot of times, especially when you're stuck in this anxious state, your brain's always going to have a next thing to worry about. So the solution oftentimes isn't focusing heavily on what the solution is to the worry, but focusing more on how to manage that worry itself. So if you take the time to work at managing that worry itself, solutions, I think, also become easier. So the first method we're going to talk about for cluster three is method seven, turning it off. So one thing that you can do to help turn off that feeling of anxiety and worry is just in your mind, visualize a quiet place. And in this quiet place, you're going to have an open container. And through your own eyes, in this imaginary place, you're going to take each of these worries and you're going to place them into this empty container. Then you're going to put a lid on it and then you're going to place it out of the way someplace that's not in your vision. And then what you're going to do is then you're going to actively try to then fill that space with thoughts and items that are currently important. And the act of doing this and visualizing yourself doing this helps you, again, to focus on something other than what you're anxious about and will give you a sense of feeling of power and control. Now, doing this, it's not necessarily going to guarantee that the stuff that you put in the box is going to stay in the box. But then if it starts to come back out again, you're just going to visualize yourself again. Hey, okay, I'm going to take that item that popped out of the box. I'm going to put it back in the box, put the lid back on, and I'm going to put this back away. And I also think we mentioned this in the last episode is that a lot of this stuff takes practice. And so the first time you do it, you may not necessarily get a great outcome right away. But as you practice it more, I think we talked about this in the last episode, you're creating these new neural pathways towards this is the new norm for me. I'm not focusing on or getting stuck on the anxiety. I'm now putting this away and I'm managing something else right now. And another way you might want to try out this idea is to physically write your worries down on just small pieces of paper. So as a worry pops up, you write it down, you put it in the box. And even sitting down initially and writing all your worries out and then putting all of those in the box, that might help you more to be able to physically write it down and put it away. 
But this rumination really is one of those things where it's not a matter of, like Tim said before, trying to solve each problem, but really slowing down your brain enough and even stopping it so that your mind has some rest and can kind of cool off. So method number eight is persistent interruption of rumination. So this ruminative worry just is constantly interfering with your daily activities and your daily thoughts and your focus. And so the technique that you want to use is thought stopping and thought replacing in order to interrupt that chronic rumination. But the most important thing in doing this is to do it persistently. And so I know that this can be very tiring, right? You don't just worry a couple times a day if you have this persistent rumination. You're worrying throughout the day. In the beginning especially, it's a lot of work to be persistent with this. And so she says, even if it's a thousand times a day or more, make sure that you're being persistent with this. Because a lot of times clients will come back and say that, oh, this didn't work. You know, I tried it 20 or 30 times throughout the day, but they're still experiencing this rumination. But she talks about one client that was successful at this, and it was because she had warned her about how persistent she'd have to be with it. When you told me I'd have to thought stop every time, even if it was a thousand times a day, I thought you were kidding. If you hadn't warned me, I'd have given up in despair after about a hundred times, thinking it wouldn't work for me. But since you said a thousand, I figured I'd better stay the course. And after a couple of days, it got markedly better. And so when you think about it, ruination is really persistent, right? It's there throughout the day. In order to beat it, you need to be even more persistent. I think an interesting thing about this too is that if you think about it, when you're spending all your time ruminating on an unnecessary anxiety point, something that's not super important, like, oh man, I cut that person off earlier today on accident. I feel really bad. I feel guilty. Don't get me wrong. It's okay in the moment to be like, oh, I feel bad. That's not great. But continuing to spend the rest of your day worrying about it or feeling bad about it is not doing any benefit to anybody. It's not helping you. It's not helping the person that you might have accidentally cut off. But what it is now doing is it's now taking your mental energy from other things that you need to be accomplishing. And then instead of doing those tasks or being able to finish those tasks efficiently, you're now not doing those things or you're taking longer to do them. And then as you now start getting backlogged or you have now maybe even procrastinated on some of these things, now you're actually stacking real anxiety behind an unnecessary anxiety. Oh man, now I'm really behind and now I've got real problems. So sometimes our artificially created problems through anxiety can actually create real problems for us because it's stealing our focus and our energy from something that we should be working on or something that we should be completing. Yeah, and I like that idea of it's stealing something from you because I think a lot of people with persistent worry, they really have found a sense of comfort and maybe more familiarity with just having this constant worry. And so when that's taken away and there isn't worry, as much as that's exactly where they want to be without worry, they feel odd or they feel out of place when they don't have that worry because that worry really has become a companion for them. And so when you think about it, like Tim said, about it's stealing from you, it's not this friend or this companion. It really is sobering to think of how much it really is taking from you. Method number nine is worry well, but worry once. I really like this title because it's not that you should never worry about things. It definitely is important to stop and take inventory and think about how things could possibly go wrong. 
because then you can avoid a lot of unnecessary difficulty or heartache. But anything past that, now you're wasting your time, effort, and energy. It's no longer helpful. So when we do have worries, when we do have a certain sense of anxiety, you want to face them head on, not try to be super avoidant of those. And we do have techniques and things that we have been talking about here where it's about diverting your attention or moving away from it. That's from the chronic or consistent worry and the rumination. But when you do have a worry or concern, it absolutely is important to face it head on and start working through that. So what we're going to give you is five steps that you can do to worry well, but only worry once. So the first step is you're going to worry through all issues. So you're going to take some time. You're going to sit down. You're going to think about it. What's the problem? How could this go wrong? And you're going to be intentional with that effort to go through these different things. So when we talk about worrying through all the issues, we mean all the issues, like the most serious things that you're worried about, all the way down to the mundane details that don't even really matter right now. And so if you're going in for a surgery, being able to think about, well, the big picture, right, is, well, what if I die in the surgery? But worrying through all the issues, meaning worrying through, well, who's going to watch my kids? Who's going to drive me there? What am I going to have to eat when I'm in there? What if I forget something? What if I don't like the nurse that I have? And so you're worrying about, you know, that big thing that is obviously there, right? I'm worrying about dying in the surgery. It's not just that, but it's worrying through every step about that issue. So you're going to worry through all the issues. So when you're doing this worry session, make sure that you set a timer. I'm going to worry for 10 minutes. And then set that timer and stick to that timer. And then whatever you didn't get through, you know, you can use method seven and write it all down and put it in that box and put it away. And then your next session, pick it back up and you set that timer again. And you worry for those 10 minutes. So when you are in that 10 minutes, you are worrying well, but worrying only once. Step two is take immediate action. So if there's something that you're worrying about and you identify a solution or something that you can do to resolve that, you want to do it right now, not later. Because if you can do it and you can solve that problem, it helps make it easier to eliminate future worry about that. But if you procrastinate and you kick the can down the road, you're leaving additional room for worry. Now, there's not always something that you necessarily could immediately take action on, but anything that you can immediately take action on, you must take immediate action because then that really helps you to manage those feelings of worry. Now, if you're not able to fully accomplish step two, because there's maybe some things where it's, I can't take immediate action, I can't resolve this right now, what you're going to do is you're actually going to set up a future worry time. Hey, you know what? Wednesday at five o'clock when I get off work, I'm going to go, I'm going to sit in my car. And at that time before I drive home, I'm going to sit there and I'm just going to kind of worry through this again. I'm going to think about that. Now, this may sound funny to set a date and time for worrying, but if you have that date and time set up, it's easier for you when that worry kind of sneaks in at an inappropriate time to say, no, no, not right now. Now's not the time. I got a date for you at uh, five o'clock on Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to deal with you. You have the set pattern and structure. And going back to step two, even if you can't take immediate action to resolve it, you still take an immediate action to set up a time that you're going to worry about it in the future so that you can think about how to solve that at that time. But when you're restricting it to a specific time and place that you're going to do it at, that allows you to then tell your brain when it brings up this worry, no, no, this isn't that right time. We're going to wait a little bit and then we'll deal with it then. 
And so step four is you're going to write that time on the calendar. Hey, this is my time. This is going to happen. You may even want to set an alarm or a reminder for it to remind you, oh, hey, this is the time and place where I'm going to do this at. And then step five, I already kind of explained that is whenever your mind is trying to make you think about that worry, but it's not yet the time, you're going to divert those thoughts and you're going to move away from it. Yeah. So what you want to say is when those thoughts come up, say, stop, I've already worried about it. And then like Tim said, divert your thoughts as quickly as possible to something else. But definitely use the same phrase again and again, right? Saying, stop, I already worried about this. Because that is true. You have already worried about it. And so it helps your brain to know like, oh, wait, we have worried about this. And it's not that you have to leave it forever, but you have another slot that you're also going to worry at. Method 10 is learn to plan instead of worry. So a big difference between planning and worrying is that a good plan doesn't need constant review. An anxious brain will look at a plan and then review it and reconsider it and go over and over and over again to make sure it's the right plan, to make sure they didn't miss anything. And no matter how good of a plan it is, they're trying to find those holes or something that they just forgot. Now, before we jump into going through the steps of creating a good plan, one thing to be aware of is there are no perfect plans. You shouldn't try to come up with a perfect plan because you can't. A great example of this that can help give you context or an understanding is in order to become an MFT or marriage and family therapist, you have to have a master's degree. Now, about halfway through your master's degree, you start practicing and actually start seeing clients. It's called your practicum. When I started my practicum, I'm now five years post high school. I majored in psychology. Now I'm in a psychology master's program. And I remember sitting down with my first client after having five years of education about therapy and working with people, but never having really done it before. And even though I had all this background knowledge and information, I still was not prepared for the event. And so even though, to the best of my ability, I had studied, I had worked, we had talked about this stuff in class, sitting down and actually working with somebody is different than just the theoretical idea of working with somebody. And so there was still a learning curve that had to happen. So in these situations, a lot of times you're going to have a worry or a situation that you don't have a whole lot of context for, and you're going to want to create a plan. And it is definitely good to create a plan. You definitely should create a plan. But you shouldn't think that if I create a good enough plan, it's going to go flawlessly. A part of it is I'm creating a plan that's going to be good enough to help me manage or a starting place that may need to be amended as I start implementing this plan because things always change. There's unforeseen things. And a part of the anxiety is going to want to cause you or call you to try to identify all the unforeseen things. But that's not helpful. What you have to do is just identify what likely things are going to happen and then try to come up with what seems to be, based on your information, to be a reasonable course of actions after that. But if you're thinking creating a plan is going to solve all the problems and make everything go perfectly, it's not. But the idea is I at least have a set course of actions that I can start taking if a problem does happen and then know that I may have to amend it as I'm implementing it. You're going to leave it until there's a time where you have to start implementing it and then if you discover there's some problem with your plan, then alter it. So although there are different ways to plan, we're just going to go off of what she teaches in her book. She teaches a couple of steps in order to create a plan. So number one is to concretely identify a problem. So you're figuring out basically what you're creating a plan for. Now, if you hear step number one, that may feel a little bit rudimentary for you. But one of the things that I think a lot of people struggle with is they really have no idea what the actual problem is. 
And so then they start trying to solve issues that really aren't their problem. So making sure you take step one seriously and really sit down and think, what really is my problem? What is the thing that is difficult or that I'm struggling with here? It may be a situation that you're running into, or it may be an emotion, or it may be something else, but stopping and really taking time to consider what really is going on here, what really is the concern. And number two is to list the problem-solving options. So you're just going to kind of brainstorm, write all the different options that are there. Number three is picking out one of the options. And then number four, you're going to write out a plan of action. So I know this is very basic, but you're going to go through all your different options and choose one. And then you're just going to start to write the plan based on the step one of the worry well, but worry once, where you're worrying through all of the issues. So all of those issues that you had brought up, you're going to make sure you write a plan of action. So we use the example of the surgery. So all the issues I came up with about who's going to drive me there, who's going to watch my children, that's all going to be included in this plan. And in order to be successful with this method, you need to make sure that you're also using the thought stopping and thought replacing tools, because otherwise your mind's going to try and turn this into that ruminative worry and just kind of replanning and looking at it again and questioning it. So as you're creating a solid plan and you have all these worries come up, make sure that you're using that thought stopping. And then once you have a good solid plan, this then becomes part of your thought stopping statement. So I said earlier, stop, I've already worried, but now you can include stop, I have a plan. And so when you go into that ruminative worry, use that phrase and say, stop, I have a plan. And remember to be persistent with this. And remind yourself, remember, no matter if it takes a thousand times or more, just reminding yourself that I do have a plan. Things are in place. It's okay. And even if your brain then starts to challenge your plan, stopping it with, my plan is good enough. Because that's the other side of this that can happen. It's not just worrying about the worry, but now it's worrying about the plan. And then my plan is good enough. And just leaving it at that. Because again, a part of this is that you're just going to have to see if your plan works or not. It may work way better than you anticipated, or it may need some tweaks and twists. But the only way you'll know is if you implement that plan first and then really see how it goes. So I want to review just what we covered in today's episode. So cluster three, the mental anguish of rumination, you're going to use method seven through 10, which is method seven, turning it off. Method eight, persistent interruption of rumination. So making sure that you are committed to being persistent in this. Number nine, worry well, but worry once. And number 10, learn to plan instead of worry. All right, guys, this wraps up our series on anxiety. It's been a long trip, but we hope that you guys got a lot of benefit from this and that if you're struggling with anxiety, it really helps you to understand it more and then helps give you real clear guidelines and tips on how to help work at managing and then resolving those feelings of anxiety. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, your mind is a powerful thing. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode and found it helpful. If so, would you take 30 seconds and share it with a friend? Also, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It lights us up to know that this podcast is helping you. If you have any questions or a topic you'd like discussed in future episodes, visit our Facebook group. Just click the link in the description below. Although we are mental health providers, this podcast is for informational purposes only. 
and is not intended to provide diagnosis or treatment. If you are struggling with persistent mental health issues, chronic marital issues, or feeling hopeless or suicidal, you are not alone. Help is available. Please seek professional help or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988. Thank you again for joining us on Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. Remember, there's always hope and there's always help.